With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. I am with Jaime Lopez. And as those of you that are following my show might know, last week I did a 20-minute blurb on running mechanics. I did it solo, and it was harsh. It was tough for me to do. I hate doing things like that. And I asked at the very conclusion of the show if anyone was interested in talking to me about questions they may have, things they'd like me to discuss, topics I should cover, just to get a hold of me via social media, what have you. And lo and behold, Jaime Lopez reached out to me and said he had some questions he'd like to have me answer for him. And I invited him on the show. And having said all that, Jaime, say hello to our audience. Hello, uh, hello, Richard. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I've been um, I've listened to your podcast now for oh, probably going on six months. Uh, and I, quite frankly, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and to me, you're the the most, I guess, not just entertaining, but you you keep my attention, which which is kind of hard because I do it when I'm out walking my dog. But you're um, you're you're definitely the, the knowledge you share with everyone uh, is is very helpful. And then once I, I found your podcast, I started following you on social media. And then I started seeing the, the videos you would post of before and after sort of and, and things that you look for in form. Uh, and so I try to follow most of the stuff uh, that you post out there because I, I found it really helpful. And, and that's sort of uh, where I'm stuck. I listened to your show yesterday, uh, last week. Uh, and I have all this information. Uh, I have a Garmin that measures a bunch of information and it gives me a lot of feedback. And I go back and I look at it after a run and I see it and it's basically in another language because I don't understand it. Um, the, the Garmin will tell me my uh, cadence, my average cadence, my maximum cadence, uh, obviously heart rate, elevation, a training effect, stride length, vertical oscillation, ground contact time. Honestly, I, I think I can decipher the heart rate. I can decipher the speed. I can decipher the elevation. I know about cadence uh, and about how you're supposed to try to keep it at 180 or above. 
Um, but that's where I get stuck is now what's the rest of it? Moving my feet at 180 doesn't mean I'm moving in, in, in the right mechanic form that I need to, to one, prevent injury, but more importantly, go even faster than, than I do now because I'm pretty slow since I'm new at running. So that's what I was asking for help with is stride length. How long should my stride be? Vertical oscillation, what is that? And ground contact time, what should I look for in, in those numbers? Okay, so the, the advantage we have, Jaime, is that I am looking at your work, which is pretty much how I handle the work with online clients to begin with. Like you at this moment in time, I have people that I work with that live in other parts of the world where we may never meet. In your case, I believe we're going to meet, uh, hopefully, at the uh, run clinic we're going to do in Austin, Texas in December, which is going to help a lot. It's going to really bring things home for you. But let's assume that in the absence of the ability for you to meet me and me to meet you, all I have at my disposal is the information you provided. And the good news is that with the device you're using, we're getting a lot of good information here. And But I want to I back up a little bit and start with just essentials uh, to make sure, aside from just what we're tracking, what we're trying to achieve as we're tracking this information. And let's begin with heart rate. So I'm looking at the heart rate that you are exhibiting during this workout that I'm looking at. But let's start by asking, what heart rate were you trying to achieve in this particular workout? I mean, and why did you use it? Uh, so, for example, I'm assuming that this workout being uh, close to two hours long, the focus of the workout was to remain aerobic as best you could for the length of that workout. Is that pretty much correct? Yes. It's a... Uh I don't have right. I'm following a, a plan. It's sort. It's called the 80-20 plan. So that says you don't have to kill yourself every day, uh, and don't make the mistake of just running middle of the road the whole time. You need to either go slow or go fast, and most of your run should be slow. So the point of this run was it was the long run for the week. It was my first week on the plan. Uh, they ask first try to get your lactic threshold rate and then figure your heart rate from there. They tell you how to get to your lactic threshold and they said basically go run a, go run 30 minutes, uh, which is another run that, that you have access to that, that I previously sent you. Run for 30 minutes, look at your heart rate for the last 10 minutes, uh, and that can be a safe estimate. Okay, so uh, let's, let's stop you right there for a second. First of all, whose workout are you following? It is a plan called the 80-20 plan. It was written by Matt Fitzgerald. It's out on paperback. I'm, I'm familiar with it. I have a copy of it. Yes, sir. Okay, a couple things. Um, I love Matt, and if you've dug back far enough into my uh, podcast, you'll learn that I've probably done four or five different uh, interviews and discussions with Matt Fitzgerald personally. And, and Matt has actually participated in my r running coaches certification where he presented on nutrition, and so I'm just setting the stage here to let you know that, A, Matt and I are friends, and I've known Matt for quite a long time, and we've discussed all of these things at great length many, many times, not to suggest we agree on everything, by the way. 
His book on 80-20 is interesting. The reason I say interesting is because, first of all, I have been, uh, well, let me just back up. Do you have a copy of my book? No, sir, I don't. Okay, so I'm going to make sure to send you a PDF copy of my book. You're going to find that, assuming that your focus is you're preparing for a marathon, and when you're talking to Matt Fitzgerald, those are the kind of things he's kind of keying in on. He's thinking in terms of people that are trying to aspire to improve their times in a marathon. And the 80-20 formula has basically been drawn from a gentleman by the name of Steven Seiler. And Steven Seiler is an exercise scientist who lives, in, I believe it's in Norway, someplace like that. And I adopted a lot of the philosophy that I use in my book around that system of training, where 80% of your volume in a given week would be dedicated to improving your aerobic performance. And the other 20%, and this is where we depart in theory, Matt and I, is dedicated to higher intensity work. But in my case, what I like to see people do is focus on speed development which is something that requires that you are able to achieve speed with appropriate form. So in other words, you just don't go to the track and throw off some ambiguous intensity and hoping that that's eventually going to cause you to get faster. My focus is motor skill development. My focus is trying to get you to achieve velocity, speed, without sacrificing good running mechanics because... When your running mechanics falter, your speed will chase it. You'll start slowing down even though you're working harder and or you will potentially injure yourself. So when I think in terms of 80-20 as a ratio of volume and intensity, I'm really talking more about the benefit of developing your aerobic potential and the importance of developing your skill set. And the ratio of time dedicated to those tasks is 80% for aerobic and 20% skill-based. And that is what I would preface a training program with. So this is like, for example, the first six, eight weeks of your training would be built around those, those principles. In Matt's theory, or I should be more precise and say, in uh, Dr. Seiler's theory is that, and this is found through research they've done on all sorts of athletes throughout the world over history, is that some of the greatest athletes in the world follow this principle of training. And when they do this type of training, the majority of the work they do is base development training, and the, 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 the shorter share of this is intensity. So uh, let me give you an example. Kenyans and Ethiopians, the way they train principally is this way. About 80% of the time they're doing this lower-intensity work, and then 20% of the time, they're doing more high-intensity work. So the, the difference in theory between what they're doing and what I'm doing, and I'm just kind of reiterating this, but I want to make sure we're clear on it, is that I don't think you're allowed, I don't think you should have the allowance to get to intensity unless you can do it with good form. Because... Throwing greater intensity at bad form is just a hellbound train. You're, you're eventually going to injure yourself. So having said that, 
And when I look at your workouts and the questions that arise when we start talking about cadence and we start talking about ground contact and we start talking about vertical oscillation, these metrics that are appearing here are suggesting that whenever you try to get to speed, you begin to make mistakes. And to suggest that it's okay to go ahead and issue 20% of your training time to bad form and higher intensity is, in my mind, it's almost irresponsible to provide that kind of a training. Does that make any sense to you? It, it does, okay. uh, and that's and, and that's why I reached out to you. All right, good, uh, good. I, I don't want to. Uh, I want to get better at it. Right, right. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. So forward. Okay, let me back you up again. Let's talk about how we arrive at the aerobic component of your training. And in your case, what Matt had you do is he had you do a 30-minute field test. And what you would do is, uh, if I'm not off base, and you can you can correct me if I'm wrong because I don't have it you know dead in my mind, but basically you go off and you run as hard as you can for 30 minutes, and then you look at what your average pace or heart rate was. It's more so your heart rate. And then based on that heart rate, you might even do some math to determine uh, what would be a lesser heart rate or a greater heart rate to to follow and use that principally as something that is sustainable for your base heart rate. Is that correct? Correct. All right. Now, I have to tell you, I do use a very similar approach in some cases. And generally what it is is when I don't meet someone and I'm trying to make sure that what I do with them is appropriate, I will well, I will go there. For example, I've got a client. He may very well be listening to this show right now. He lives in Vermont, I believe. And he's a marathon runner. And he is a little older than you. I want to say he's about 50 years old. But he's actually a pretty accomplished runner. And his focus was to be capable of running a sub three hour marathon. And, you know, I think he actually he's very capable of running in and around a, a six minute pace. But um, anyway, we were trying to establish his aerobic heart rate and having not been able to test him or physically be with him. Uh, we began by using Maffetone's equation, which is essentially uh, subtracting your age from 180 and then arriving at, um, a aerobic heart rate. So uh, in his case, that would have been like 130 beats per minute. All right? Uh-huh. So we had him do all of his aerobic work in and around 130 beats per minute, and which is very typical, incidentally. He complained that the intensity seemed so, so conservative that it didn't make any sense to him. And I'm so used to hearing people say that that I just poo-pooed it. And, and commonly what I'll tell people is that when you're thinking in terms of developing your aerobic potential, being conservative is far more effective than being a little less conservative. So in other words, let's say, for example, that you found that your heart rate at 150 beats per minute was sustainable for a half an hour, and or it was your average heart rate, and you thought, okay, that's my threshold, so I'm going to do most of my threshold runs in and around that heart rate. And in fact, you're wrong by 10 beats per minute, meaning that you were anaerobic at that point. 
right. then you've you've done yourself a disservice. And all the training that you've put into, when I say training, I'm talking about time. Let's right. say you spent five weeks developing your what you thought was your aerobic potential, and you were ten beats over your threshold. You were you were screwing the pooch. You you, you basically messed it up. So in essence, what I'm saying is that in most cases, I would vie for someone to be ultra conservative. Now, in this guy's case, having done that so often, I thought, you know, I don't believe this guy's threshold's that low. And him throwing data at me and him talking to me about finish times and races he's done before, I finally got to a place where I said, you know, I need a little bit more information. So what I want you to do is a field test. And what I had him do is run a 10K, not 30 minutes, but I want him to run a 10K. And I wanted him to run the 10K as hard as he could, and then I wanted to see what his average heart rate was. And then from that, what we did is we backed up about 10 beats per minute. And it turned out that his sustainable heart rate during that 10K was in and around 160 beats per minute. So we went ahead and brought him down to about 150. And I felt that that was probably, in his case, going to be a little bit better suited. So at the end of the day, in a perfect world, the way to arrive at the appropriate aerobic intensity for training, the best way to do it is to get a VO2 max test. That way we don't have to guess, and that way we're going to be precise. Now, in your case, at the moment, what I would suggest is that you subtract your age from 180 and go that route for a little bit. And by the way, if, if you go back and read Maffetone's book, on this whole principle of training, what he does is he grants you consideration relative to your state of affairs. So in other words, if you've been training effectively without injury, without illness for the past two years, for example, he may grant you 10 beats. If you've been injured, um, not have been able to train consecutively, consistently for the past six months, he may take away five beats. But basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to land at a pretty reasonable heart rate for you to uh, conduct yourself and be aerobic. And I just think that uh, I've kind of shed a lot of those little, uh, you know, considerations. And I've just found that if I just use the 180 and subtract your age, in most cases, that seems to be a pretty decent place to put people. Well, and just I did do a, a 10K recently to jump back to that real quick. Um, I did that back October 10th, so a month ago today, and my average heart rate there was 159. Uh, as far as Maffetones, uh, since I do listen to podcasts, I know that he's been around for a long time, but gaining popularity, it seems, more and more in the, the shows that I listen to. Uh, and I think I also heard him on your podcast. Yep. Uh, and um Interestingly enough, I used that number, which is, I, I nailed it at 137. I did the Ragnar Trail run in Austin a couple of weeks ago, and I had to do extra laps for some team members that couldn't complete. And so my goal was to not go out there and race as hard or go as slow as possible. It was, my theory was, well, according to Dr. Maffetone, if, if I have a good aerobic base, I should be able to go at 137. So that's what I did, and I was able to complete uh, extra laps because I think I, I didn't wear myself out. I I just averaged dead on 137 beats per minute. So I, I think that um, it, whether it's a theory or not, it, it seems to work for me 
uh, and I've used it on a couple of other occasions to uh, to go for a long time and, and keep it at that heart rate. Yeah. Now, if you recall during that show, I apologized to him for bagging on him for years, right? Yes. <laughs> and I uh, and you also might recall that he and I met, and I tested his theory with a metabolic cart where he stood right next to me as I tested a series of people. And we looked at the clinical evaluation of their, their aerobic potential relative to his equation. And what I found was that about 70% of the time, it was a pretty good number. And that's why I use it. So I've never, well, I don't think never is a good word, but I, I do not do anything based on the fact that I read somebody else's writing and thought, okay, uh, I'm just going to go with this. I test almost any theory that I employ. And the advantage that I have is, from this perspective, doing metabolic evaluations, I've been able to successfully look at a lot of different things and decide whether or not it's worth giving it any cred. So in Maffetone's case, I found that that 180 worked out pretty well. But I've also concluded that if you give too much rope to people, that they'll hang themselves. Yeah. So people think, ah, I'm pretty good. I'm going to go give myself another 10. This felt pretty easy. I'm going to give myself another 5. And then what happens is they find themselves doing what they should not be doing. It should be, in the beginning, uncomfortable to try to sustain that aerobic pace, meaning that you're going to want to go faster. And through my experience, having tested people for the past 20 years, most people that I meet spend the majority of their life anaerobic when they're training. So it's almost like a simple fix to just get them exposed to this oxidative environment, which is something that's so contrary to what they've done in their past that it always ends up being of, of value. So for whatever it's worth, I think that you're probably spot on with this 137. I almost would say I wouldn't fear going to 140 because you know how hard it is to stick on a number. I'd say if you went from like 130 to 140 and just kind of nailed it middle and just kind of stuck at about 135 to 140, you're probably going to be in a good place where being aerobic is concerned. So now that we know that that metric is a good one, let's move on. Let's take a look at your cadence. And that seems to be where a lot of the problems reside. Yes. Um, the I know that there's a focus on try to keep your cadence at 180. That's what, you know, all the great runners do, which I'm not a great runner, but, you know, but that's I've heard it from you. I've heard it from other people. 180 is the good place to go. I can keep 180. If you tell me to go run eight and a half minute mile, I'll, I'll nail 180 to 183. Uh, if you tell me go run a ten and a half minute mile, keep your heart or ten minute mile, keep your heart rate uh, at 135 to 140. That's what slows down it, my cadence. That that's my speed regulator, and I think it's not supposed to be. So I don't know how to get my cadence up, but keep my heart rate and my speed low. Okay, for starters, when. Most people read or hear that the focus should be to keep their cadence at around 180 strides per minute. That typically will cause them to shorten up their gait dramatically. Correct. And again, when you come down to terms of injury prevention, the focus of the theory, for the most part, is 
Most people think that keeping their gate beneath them is what they're trying to achieve. And then where they get into trouble is they can't go faster. What they end up having to do if they're trying to go faster is they have to crank their cadence up. And if they go slower, they lower their cadence and they lope. They take longer strides. Shuffling is what I do. Right. So what ends up happening is that, and I do this all the time, by the way, I'll get somebody on a treadmill and I'll force their rate of movement because I'm controlling the treadmill to say four miles per hour. And I'll have them run at 180 strides per minute at four miles per hour. And their steps are going to be much, much narrower. It's going to be so close beneath them, almost like they're marching in place as they're running. But my focus is not so much the cadence as much as it is causing them to train the appropriate contact with the ground. So it's going to be very, very difficult to overstride when you're at four miles per hour at 180 strides per minute. And it's annoying, I mean, to the point where it's like really, really frustrating to try to accomplish that. And in the beginning, it may even cause your heart rate to go higher than you'd like it to. But in the moment, what I'm concerned about is not so much heart rate, but ground contact and what I call bilateral equivalence. In other words, we want both feet doing the same amount of work. And then as they start to move with good rhythm and they're at that stride frequency, I'll progressively increase the speed of the treadmill. And then the challenge becomes eventually that if you were to keep up with the belt, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to try to extend your stride, which means you're overstriding, and your stride frequency is going to slow down, or you're going to have to increase your stride frequency in order to keep up with the belt. The conundrum here is that you need to be able to extend your hip and get stride length to open up behind you. So you don't want to ever violate your contact point with the ground. It should always be just, just, just ahead of your center of mass when you make contact with the ground. And then what ends up happening is in the course of flying, leading out with your knee, making contact with the ground beneath you, you're going to get hip extension. Your leg is going to splay out behind you, and that extension at the hip is going to create some reciprocal Response. You're going to get recoil. Your knee is going to flex forward, and you're going to make ground contact, hopefully, beneath your knee, and meaning that you should be posted above your foot when that occurs. And I know that's kind of hard to kind of decipher over an audio wave, but in essence what I want to have happen is I want to defer your stride behind you opposed to having it extend ahead of you. And when I run people through this cadence drill, where I start them very, very slowly at the same cadence, what I aspire to do is to get them to learn to extend their hips. Now, just to be clear, extension of the hip means that the leg is behind you, not in front of you, okay? When your knee is up and forward, that would be hip flexion. When your knee is behind you, it's hip extension. Hip extension is like stretching a rubber band. Your psoas muscles, your hip flexors are going to be engaged, and the reciprocal response to that is that you're going to push your knee up and forward, or it's going to be jutted up and forward. And where you need to really control the gait is where 
you want to make sure that you don't shift the lever. You don't want to shift from your hip to your knee and then extend your lower limb from the knee down ahead of your knee joint. You with me? I am. Okay. So if your foot is just dangling beneath your knee while you're in flight, the next time you make contact with the ground, you should be posted over that foot, and you should have a successful gait at that point. So, and, and if you've ever seen any video of these Kenyans running, and I've had a lot of people make comments about, well, you know, I watched so-and-so run, and he doesn't land on his midfoot. Uh, sometimes they look like they're landing kind of flat foot. Sometimes they might even be on their heel. But rarely, rarely, rarely do you ever see these Ethiopians or Kenyans actually overstride where their foot is extended ahead of their knee. They're pretty much landing dead over top of their foot when they hit the ground. And whatever part of their foot hits first is what it is. Now, the the difference that I say concerns me is that I think you're going to get more eccentric energy. You're going to get this repayment much more efficiently if you allow the fascia in the bottom of your foot, right up into your Achilles, into your calf, project your knee back up in the air. You want to get that recoil. And when you land further towards your heel, you start detracting from, from the ability to actually get that, that recoil from the ground. So when I look at your cadence in your workout here, I see that you're at 165, 168, and even though your heart rate is only 128, I'm at, well, let me just back it up a little bit. I'm at, I'm 165 beats per minute. Yep, your heart rate's at 128 beats per minute. So you're clearly aerobic, but you're still overstriding. I promise you that when your stride frequency is at 165, you're overstriding. And then I'm going to go a little further on. Your heart rate's pretty static. Looks like for the first 25 minutes, your cadence is still below 165 strides per minute. And then, let's see, I am 45 minutes into this workout, and you're at 133 beats per minute. You're still aerobic, but your cadence is still showing us 165 steps per minute. And then eventually, towards the end of the workout, your cadence actually gets slower, and that's probably associated with a little bit of fatigue uh, relative to the work you're doing, um, but you're you're still overstriding. So, in, in this two-hour effort, I think there was only maybe, oh geez, a little blip on the radar where you might have got up to around 165, 166. I see here maybe 170, but for the most part, um, you were absolutely well below the cadence that would be prescribed. So how I guess I'm really confused now. How do you have a slow how do you have a slow cadence but overstriding? Cadence re- represents the amount of time that your foot is on the ground. Okay, so if you put your foot ahead of your body and make contact with the ground, your foot's going to be on the ground longer because you have to pull your body towards your foot, and until your body is posted over your foot, you're on the ground. If you're landing near center of mass, the length of time before you are pitching your body forward and your foot's back in the air is far shorter. So looking at the dynamics again, it says the average stride length was 0.93 meters. So that means that that number is too high? That sounds to me like about 36 inches is what your stride is. 
Uh-huh. Now, I don't have a problem with how long your stride length is. I have a problem with you where, where you initiate ground contact. So I would suggest to you that if your stride indicated here is uh, 0.93 meters, I'd say the majority of that was occurring ahead of your center of mass. You follow me? Yes. So I want that stride to open up behind you. I don't want it in front of you. And you're going to find also that your ground contact time is going to be quicker. Like here it says your average ground contact time was 225 milliseconds. Uh, we'd like to cut that in half. And you would easily cut that in half if your ground contact was closer to your center of mass. So realize that the enemy in all of this is the ground and gravity. And you're basically the squishy stuff in the middle. And the longer your load is in contact with the ground, the more gravity is pushing you into the ground. That's where you're starting to deal with resistance, which means you're under load. And the longer you're under load, the more work you're doing. I tell people all the time, when you fall out of an airplane, it doesn't become a problem until you hit the ground. What you want to do, basically, when you're running is try to stay off the ground as much as you can. And when you're at 160 strides per minute, you're on the ground too long. That's the problem. And if you're putting your foot in contact with the ground ahead of your center of mass, then you're opposing inertia. You're trying to move forward, and then you're sticking a spike in the ground ahead of your body, which is going to cause a braking force that you have to overcome. And then essentially what you're doing is you're collapsing until you get to a place where your foot is beneath your body. Does that make any sense? It does. If you were to stand up and balance on one foot, with your foot posted beneath you, that's as stable as you're able to become on one foot. If you try to place your foot on the ground 12 inches ahead of your center of mass, and without shifting your body forward, try to stand on that foot or balance on that foot, you couldn't do it. Right. Because you're now in a precarious position. Because your foot is ahead of your center of mass, you're now trying to put your body weight onto an unstable platform. It's not going to work. The only reason it works when you're running is because you have momentum. You're moving forward. But until your body gets over that foot, you're in a very precarious and unstable position. And then because you're at this disadvantage mechanically, your knee will collapse, your hip will collapse. All of these body parts in the kinetic chain are going to fail you because you're asking too much of them. Does that make any sense? It does. All right, so a lot of this stuff can make you dizzy. When you're looking at the stride length, you go, oh, the stride length is kind of constant. It's not that big of a problem. Well, you have to think in terms of where that stride length is occurring. If I was to do anything, I'd like to see if I could shorten up this ground contact time. And if you think in terms of what your heart rate looks like, in the beginning, when you bring your heart rate up, or excuse me, when you bring your stride frequency up to 180 strides per minute, it's going to be very expensive. You're going to find that your heart rate, because it's so uncomfortable and unfamiliar for you to move your legs that quickly, that the cost of work is going to go up. And you're going to think, well, this is ridiculous. This isn't helping me. But eventually you adapt, and it becomes a sweet spot. You'll find that being at 180 just starts to work for you, just like 160 did. But almost better, not almost, it is better, because you'll find that you're not making as much ground contact time. And 
if I took you to, for example, if I put you down in my lab right now and put you on a treadmill and put a metronome on you and guided you up to 180 strides per minute and progressively started to improve the speed of the treadmill belt, there would come a time where eventually it would seem very, very comfortable for you to be at that stride frequency. And that's probably where you want to hang out. So if I see on my, when I'm supposed to run faster, that my cadence is increasing, but so is my stride length, that means I'm really overstriding to maintain that pace. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Oh, okay. One of two things is going to happen when you try to increase your speed. And these are the things that you're battling with, by the way. I tell people, I don't want you to exceed 180 strides per minute as you try to achieve speed. And the only way you're capable of doing that is if you're flying and your flight time is greater, which means your ground contact is less. So every time you make contact with the ground and you push off, you're going to cover more distance without messing with the frequency. So in other words, your frequency doesn't change. You're just covering more ground per step. So I guess the truth would be, yes, your stride length will improve, but your ground contact time will also improve. What you don't want to have happen is your average stride length to go up and your ground contact time to go up with it, because that means you're definitely overstriding. Does that make any sense? It does. So let me ask you about this morning's run. Five-minute five warm-up, 30-minute zone two, 12 minute zone three. So basically in my, in my speed terms, that would be about 10 and a half, 10 and nine, uh, uh, minute mile. So my cadence at warm up was 163. Uh, my stride length is 0.94. My ground contact time is 232. And then as it go, as I get faster, the next round, the 30 minute part of it, my cadence increases to 169. My ground contact time goes down to 208. My stride length uh, stays at 0.94. Now I've got to go nine miles, uh, nine minute pace. My cadence is 178. Uh, stride length is one, one meter, and my ground contact time goes down to 187. Is that what I should be looking for as far as trying to maintain form as I get try to go faster? It sounds like on paper that that would be the thing that you're trying to do. What I fear, and just to be very frank with you, when you're dealing with uh, an accelerometer, I don't trust it. Okay. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean, I understand what it's trying to do for you, but I just don't know that I trust it. When I video people running, and I have them get to speed, and I know I've got an audible metronome that's keeping them in time, as opposed to it trying to tell me what the occurrence was, I know that they're where they're supposed to be. So, again, if I'm videoing you, and I see that your speed increases, for example, to a six-minute mile, and I'm seeing the cadence is spot on when you're making contact with the ground, uh, what I can't measure effectively is the amount of stride length. But what I can do is I can measure the hip angle. For example, a lot of runners tend to run with a hip angle that's about 70 degrees, 75 degrees. To be clear on this, if you were to put the apex of an angle at your hip and then one end of the angle to your knee 
and then the other end of the angle to your other knee, and then the two legs are splayed out relative to how wide your, your legs are apart, that's your hip angle. And to be really effective and fast, we'd like to see that hip angle be as great as like 100, 105 to 110 degree angle. And that means that your knee would potentially be almost 90 degrees from the hip. Rarely do I see that happen with runners because what they end up doing to go faster is they increase their stride frequency. The problem with increasing your stride frequency over 180 strides per minute is it becomes expensive. Your heart rate's going to go through the roof. Your caloric expense is going to go through the roof. Your lactate is going to precipitously rise. You're going to be getting into this very toxic environment in those muscles, and eventually it's going to start shutting you down. So we want to try to achieve speed without violating those expense accounts. We don't want our legs to turn over faster. We don't want to develop all that lactic acid. And incidentally, where a lot of people get confused with this is they think, geez, I'm just going to peg 180 all the time. No, you're not. There's times when you're going to have to increase your frequency, but what you should never do is lower your frequency. So, for example, if you're running uphill, your cadence will probably need to extend greater, but your stride length is going to shorten up. So, in other words, you're taking smaller steps more frequently to go up a steep hill. And that's expensive. Your heart rate's going to go up. But in order to effectively get up that hill, you need to do that. And then when you get over the top of the crest of the hill, then you want to slide back down into that comfortable space again where you're you know, more efficient, more economical at that 180 stride rate. Sounds like I'm doing a really good job confusing you now. No, no, I I, I followed that exactly. One of the things that, that's helping me is I'm almost sure it was your video. You posted a video of that example you gave of putting someone on a treadmill and keeping 180, uh, keeping 180 on your cadence. So I, I try to picture that in my head when I run. And I think the other thing, I'm almost sure it's, it, I, I got it from you. It's sort of your your heel is you're trying to kick your butt with your heel, even if you're not doing it. Envisioning that helps with proper form. And so basically the, the body follows the mind, even though you're not actually kicking your butt with your heel, you're, 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 you're attempting to do that. So that, that helps your, your form a little bit. And I, I think it helps, but I'm not watching myself. Uh, but those, I keep those type of things in my head as I'm trying to correct these things, um, while I'm running. Well, I'd be careful with that, to be honest with you, because I've seen people get on my treadmill and all of a sudden they start reaching up to their butt with their heel. And what you're essentially doing is you're invoking a contraction in your hamstrings that's not necessary. Uh, what happens behind you happens behind you. I don't care what happens behind you. When you make contact properly, what's going to happen is the natural sequence of things is that your, your stride should open up behind you. If your heel results in being closer to your butt, that's fine with me. Some people say that that tighter angle helps them to get their stride back into play quicker. Maybe. Um, I've seen people with a really long trailing leg, and they still manage to get back into play at 180 strides per minute. I think the further back you get, the more extension in your psoas muscles you'll gain, which is going to create more flexion quicker. So it's like you want to get that elasticity in that region. You want to get the hip flexors popping for you. So it punches that knee up and forward again. It just depends. But I, I don't 
I don't usually scold people for having that occur where their heel ends up at their butt. When I scold them, it's because I see them trying to pull their heel to their butt. Right. And I think that that's just asking for trouble. It just gets expensive. Okay. And the other end of it that I've found, too, is that when people try to pull their heel towards their butt, they're, they start to shift the fulcrum, which should have been their hip, to their knee. It's like nunchucks. You pull the thing back, and it whips the lower limb forward. And that almost promotes your sticking your foot ahead of your, your knee. And that becomes a problem in itself. So I, I like to keep the action at the hips. And if you saw any of the things that I've done lately, you notice that I've been sticking rubber bands on people's thighs. And what I'm trying to do is try to recover from the sensory motor amnesia. They have no sense of glute activation. They have no sense of getting their hip flexors in play. They just focus too much on what's happening with their feet. And I've done these drills recently with a few different runners, very accomplished runners, where I, I would bind them put just a little taste of resistance, nothing crazy, and have them run against the resistance of the bands on their quads. And what ends up happening after about three or four 45-second repetitions on the treadmill, I pull the straps off, and their, their peak speed increases dramatically, and they've totally lost any concern about where their feet are going to land, and their feet happen to land very nicely underneath their center of mass. So it was, it's actually a, a pretty interesting revelation that I found. But so let's talk about a little bit more of this. Now, we're looking at, uh, we talked about um, ground contact. We talked about cadence. We talked about heart rate. We didn't talk too much about vertical oscillation. So the other end of it is in, the, in this metric that you're showing me here is that, let's see, does it give it to me? Yeah. It says that your average vertical oscillation is 8 centimeters. Is that so? Vertical oscillation is that? Um, I guess side to side movement. No, that's up and down. So in other words, when when you post your foot to the ground, the further ahead of your body you're putting your foot, the more likely you are to bounce off the ground higher. Because in order to get your foot to make contact with the ground ahead of your center of mass, you are you have to raise your your body off the ground higher. And then if you're bouncing up and down, you're, you're once again opposing gravity, and that force is, is contrary to your forward progress. I read a study where they suggested that all creatures, in order to travel one body length forward, they must leave the ground seven centimeters. So in other words, let's say, for example, in my case, I'm about six foot tall. In order for me to travel a full body length, all I need to leave the ground is 7 centimeters. You're going up 8 centimeters in order to travel about 36 inches. It would be okay if you're going traveling your body length, but you're not. You're traveling probably half your body length or less. Now have I confused you? So... <laughs> What what would be the goal then? How do I fix that? Well, the, the way you fix that is that when you're making contact near your center of mass, there's no need for that bounce. You're not having to leave the ground very high in order to travel forward. And so I guess the argument I was trying to make is that if in any creature on the planet, I'm talking from a field mouse to an elephant, 
All they got to do is leave the ground seven centimeters, which is just shy of three inches, by the way, to travel one body length. You're traveling about twice what you re- what is required of you uh, to cover 36 inches. Okay. And the reason that you're doing it is because you're overstriding. So all these numbers and all these metrics that you have on this chart are, are kind of spelling something out that you, you haven't been able to read yet. And essentially what's going on here is with your vertical oscillation being on average a little over 8 centimeters to cover what is indicated in your stride length of being 0.93 uh, meters, which is basically, I want to call it about 36, 37 inches, you're traveling about two times higher in the air than is necessary in order to, to cover that distance. Does that affect the other things that we're trying to fix as far as... It's going to affect your speed. Cadence and stride, or is it as a result of bad cadence and stride? It's a result of bad cadence and stride. Okay. It, it's so, not in, so in other words, your vertical oscillation is a direct result of you extending your foot too far ahead of your center of mass. And that is indicated by stride frequency. So... If you're running on an average of 160 strides per minute, I promise you you're overstriding. I promise you you are. And if you're overstriding, you have to create vertical lift in order to clear the ground well enough to put your foot back out ahead of you. If you stand up and just change from one foot to the other foot, there's really no need to bounce. If you stick your foot out while you're moving a foot and a half ahead of your center of mass, you'll have to bounce a certain amount of distance in the air in order to get that foot, the next foot back to that position. That so makes, that makes sense. Lower is better, and lower vertical oscillation is better. Right. I, I I don't recall the guy's name. There was an African that ran the Berlin Marathon, ran a 2:06 finish time. They measured that he never got more than a half an inch off the ground. His average oscillation was a half an inch. I typically will measure people in my lab, their vertical oscillation while they're running, to be on average five inches. Five inches up, five inches down. That's 10 inches of lost um, forward progress because you're moving up and down. That makes sense. Right? So, it, so the, it, the shorter that number is, the more efficient you're showing yourself to be. So again, to um, the number seems to get better the faster I go. So again, from this morning, if I'm going really slow, my vertical oscillation is almost eight. If I'm going at a tempo speed, then my vertical oscillation is seven point four. Does that just mean if those numbers are getting better that I'm a bad slow runner and better mid-tempo runner? You know what I honestly think it means? I think it means that your accelerometer is getting confused. (laughs) I don't think that you have enough precision in that information to really get too finite about what's resulting from it. I I just don't think you can. It can show you a trend. Well, yes, it will show you a trend. But the trend can be wrong all the time. Sure. And I listen, I ran into this recently, and I've run into it before, where pace is concerned. And if you're depending on uh, an accelerometer to provide you pace, 
you'd be surprised. I'm, have you calibrated your watch to make sure that the that there's a consistency with your your pace relative to what it's indicating? Uh, I I don't think I, I've specifically calibrated. If I go, it, it runs on G. It, it depends on on GPS and. I couldn't tell you if I went to a track right now and did one lap on on a certified track, would I get you know exactly 0.25 miles on my watch? I couldn't tell you that. Okay, well I could tell you that if you have GPS that's providing you speed, then you're okay. But GPS can't measure your vertical oscillation. Right. And it right. can't it can't give you your stride length either. Correct. And that's going to be dependent on the accelerometer. And this is where you get into trouble. I don't even know if there's a way that you can calibrate it. Yeah. I have a relationship with a company. You might have heard me talk about it. RPM Square, which incidentally is in Texas, that they've got insoles that measure ground contact time and your hang time. It's got to do with uh, how much force production you're putting into the ground. It shows you where, in fact, the ground contact is occurring. And they do it all in the footbed of your shoe, and it and it reads up on, onto your phone. Yeah, I think I was looking at their website um, a couple of days ago. I, I noticed that they, I guess they they refer to it like a power meter. Well, that's kind of where it's leading because we're talking about as a another unique metric for measuring our progress, which has been basically non-existent for running has been measuring power, which is, uh, if you've heard me talk about it before, in cycling, it's, they, they quit looking at heart rate because they're using power to determine you know, training pro- programs. That's coming. You're going to get some very, very interesting information from your body with these different devices. It just depends on how committed you are to your work, but um, it's interesting. It's interesting. But anyway, getting back to the metrics. I would suggest that I would not give a lot of credence to the what is suggesting is your vertical oscillation or even your your stride length. My focus would be, if I were you, to make sure that you're not overstriding. And the simplest way that you can define whether that's occurring or not is just have somebody shoot some video of you. The newer iPhones and the newer smartphones with the ability to slow the action down uh, there's apps out there you could you could toss the video into that are really inexpensive that allow you to mess around with what's happening with your stride. And you could look at it and you could figure it out because I promise you, I just did a clinic on Sunday and I videoed everyone at race pace. And I got a side view of it and I broke it down for them and I showed them all the mistakes they were making when they were getting to speed, every single one of them. It was 20 runners. Every single one of them was overstriding when they were trying to find speed. By the time we finished with them, we had pretty much 75% of them were capable of getting to a pretty decent speed without putting their foot ahead of their body. What's better for practicing that? Is it going out on a road and or a track, or is a treadmill going to work better since you, you can keep the speed constant with a metronome, or keep the speed constant and also use a metronome to try to keep pace with that. Well, I don't know that I would suggest that one thing is better than the other. They're different. And the difference really stems from the fact that when you're on a treadmill, it's what they refer to as rate-independent work. 
meaning that just, no matter what you do, the belt's going to move. So in essence, what you're doing is you're keeping up with the rate of the belt, where when you're on the ground, it's rate-dependent work. You're not going to go anywhere unless you push yourself or pull yourself across the ground. So I would suggest to you that it would be a good idea to do both. And what I would do is I would start at a really slow pace with an audible metronome and try to stick to that, that cadence and progressively try to get to speed without violating the cadence. That's what's going to correct you. You're going to find that the only way that you can go faster is if your stride length opens up, if you're sticking to that frequency. And I could tell you that if you're staying to 180, not going over or below, and you're moving faster, the only way that's going to happen is if your stride is opening up behind you. Because if you open up your stride in front of you and you overstride, it's going to cause you to eventually take fewer steps. Okay. Is that pretty clear? It is. So if I was to give you one thing to walk away from this with, that would be it. Two things. I would have you, A, have somebody take a video of you running from the side with an iPhone. Take a look to see what you're doing. Slow it down and take a look and see what you're doing. And then the other thing would be to use an audible metronome. I mean, literally carry your iPhone with you if that's all you have. They have i. They've got these metronome devices you could snap on your shirt or whatever, and it just gives you a little tick, tick, tick sound that you can adjust to any particular cadence. But get a um, some fashion of way to measure your cadence with a metronome, and then try to go faster without exceeding the 180 stride rate. And don't depend on the metrics from your 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 monitor, because right. I, I'm just very very suspect of that. Okay. And then you're going to start noticing that, number one, what's going to happen is, you A, you will go faster. B, your heart rate will go faster with you. Your, your heart rate is going to chase you down the road. And you're going to eventually find that it will start to settle down. Form must precede intensity. You have to clean up the way you're moving before you can ever hope to or concern yourself with how much faster you can go. That definitely makes sense. Because otherwise what you're going to do is you're going to hurt yourself. And, I, you know, I, I just got a post um, on Facebook from a gentleman that uh, participated in my clinic this past weekend, uh, Jesse Moreno. Kudos to him. He did a great job. But he said in his post that when he weight trains – the coach that works with them always has them work with lesser loads before they concern themselves with greater loads to ensure that their form is correct so they don't hurt themselves. And I thought that was a good thing to say because if you run too fast and you sacrifice form to do it, you're probably going to hurt yourself eventually. That's Yeah, I, I think the metronome will, will help and... I can either, like you said, on the phone, and I think my watch also has a metronome feature, so uh, maybe harder to hear on the watch, and it actually is if I have if I have it on a speaker of some kind. So um, I also, it's a weird theory of mine. When I started looking at the 180, I when I run with my with my dog, he keeps a one perfect 180 pace. I, I started following his foot strike. Smart dog. He, yeah, I followed his foot strike, looked at my watch, I hit 180, and so. Uh, 
you know, a couple of times a week, I'll, I'll follow him and we'll, uh, I have to be careful because I'm looking at his feet and I try to match my pace to his, or his, my cadence to his cadence. And so I think, I think there may be something just that animals are used to keeping a natural cadence, no matter what speed he goes. Uh, and so I look at his and, and that has helped a little bit too. It, it's a little bit weird to, to mention, but that helps. I think it's awesome. You know what I would do? I was, uh, while you're talking, I was sitting there thinking about ways to put the the iPhone on the dog, <laughs> yeah, actually, so you don't have to carry it. No, no, that that, that is. He has a running harness, um, and I've got a phone holder that will go. You know, you can buy those belts that hold yeah. your gel and stuff like that. It, so it mounts to those. Yeah. And his harness is the same size. The, the the looping system on there is the same size as the belt. So yes, the the phone goes on him. Uh, and I can I can look down and see his feet and and hear everything. So it's a little bit of a weird system. I think my neighbors are used to watching me uh, go out there with him and, and try these things out. I like it. I think it's a great idea. As a matter of fact, if you got the dog trained well enough where you don't have to use a leash, then that's even better. You know, you could just run alongside the dog. He carries the metronome. As a matter of fact, he could collect all the metrics for you. Well, the, the problem with that is there's rabbits. So if there, if he sees a rabbit, he's gone. There, there is no keeping up with him. Well, Jaime, I hope that we were able to shed some light on all this for you. Yes, sir, you did. And I believe you're going to come to the clinic in Austin, right? I, I am. I'm trying to figure the. I'm trying to get it all sorted out. The uh, my wife and I are, are planning on going. We just we we have two children, so we have to plan out. Are we going December 5th? Are we going December 6th? Are we going both days? So we're trying to get it all planned out. Uh, and as soon as I know a location, I'll, I'll get a hotel uh, booked. And we're we're we'll- looking at, I could tell you right now, I haven't posted it yet, but I'm, as soon as I get off uh, this podcast, I'm going to go to work on posting this information. But we're looking at uh, a residence inn, which happens to be about 16 minutes away from the track we're going to use. And it seems to be the least expensive, decent place to hang out. Uh, I will post it, but just to be clear, I've never been to Austin, Texas before. And I don't know when the next time I'm going to get there. I have people travel far and wide to visit me for me to do the very things that we're going to do when I get to Austin. It's going to be the best thing you could ever participate in as a runner. And I'm saying that with my ego aside. Because I just know from experience all the people we touch and getting them to physically get to the places we're trying to talk about over this podcast and being able to have me do a VO2 to provide you with precise information in regard to the way your body responds to work. So it's a one-two punch. We're going to work on your running mechanics. We're going to get a VO2 and give you very, very precise information to follow while you're training. You're going to come away from this thing. You're going to be lit up. You're going to be ready to rock. And I have guys, I'm telling you, I've got a guy that was in this clinic with us uh, this past weekend. He's now participated in two clinics over the last month. I met him at a clinic. He did the clinic, then came to me to get tested, and then he came and did another clinic. He came to me with plantar fasciitis. He was just having all sorts of trouble with his running. And i got to tell you, in a month, in actually less than a month, within this month, he came away from this clinic and he was running like a deer. I mean to tell you, and he's been sending me metrics showing me how his paces 
have been improving relative to heart rate. So less cost, faster running, no more pain. And I'm t I videoed him exclusively. He got a round of applause from the crowd. They could not believe, because a lot of the people knew him, how much better he was performing. So come hell or high water, my friend, if you can make it happen, make it happen. Because, again, I don't know when the next time I'm going to get down there is. And if you wanted to come see me, that's going to be a pretty expensive proposition, too. Well, yeah, we definitely, my wife and I definitely plan on being there. And I need you to bring about 10 people with you. Well, I, 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 I was going to ask you, I, um, we have a Facebook page for um, a lot of the OCR uh, friends that I have at Lone Star Spartans. There's about 3,000 members there, so wow. surely wow. They're, they're in Texas, uh, most of them in Texas. Uh, so if you want, uh, once you post more information, I can share it to that group and encourage them to come over. Well, I will, uh, because here's the conundrum, is that we really want to get out on the road and do what we're doing because we know this information is valuable. And I've got my team working with me now. I've got Miguel Medina, who is a very respected elite Spartan, and he's going to World's Toughest uh, Mudder next week. Their team very likely will win. I've been working with him. He's running very, very well right now. I've got Nicodemus Holland, who is probably one of the premier uh, ultra trail runners in the world, has been working with me. I've helped him improve his running mechanics. And the three of us has gotten together, and we've got this thing down to a science. The clinic is going to be just rock solid. You're going to want to do it. And at the end of the day, here's the thing. We need to be able to get there. We need to be able to support the cost associated with getting there. And we'd like to come away where it wasn't just for sport. We'd like to, obviously, it's a business for me. We'd like to little, make a little bit of money. We're not, sure. trying, to, we're not trying to break the bank. But uh, we, we need probably 40 people to participate in the clinic. And we can only take 15 people to do testing. So those that are interested in testing need to jump on it because they're not going to – I've already almost got that sold out. There's probably uh, – it's not even posted yet, and I know I've already got eight commitments for testing. I mean, if we if 3,000 people want to show up and do this, I'll just stay down there until we get it worked <laughs> out. But at the end of the day, for this clinic, I'm thinking in terms of maybe 40 people participating would be a very good clinic. And, you know, like I said, maybe 15 people to do the testing, and, and we got it nailed. Yeah, well, once you post the updated information, I'll definitely share that and, and encourage people to, to come on over. I appreciate that wholeheartedly. So, Jaime, what I want you to do for me is when you take that video, send it to me. L let me review it. I'll make some crib notes, and I'll send it back to you. Okay. All right? I'll, I'll get one of the kids with their iPhones out there and tell them to video it. I love it. Thanks a lot for doing this with me. I appreciate it. I'll see you in Texas, buddy. Yes, sir. We'll see you in less than a month. All right. Bye-bye now. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.